Hello, I'm Harley Schlanger from the Schiller Institute and the Executive Intelligence Review. It's January 6, 2022, and I'm joined today uh, very happily by Dr. Andrei Kortunov, the Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council. Uh, he's been a participant at several Schiller Institute conferences. Uh, he's, the, the Institute itself is a very prestigious and important institute in shaping uh, Russian foreign policy. Now we're speaking at a moment of heightened tension between the US and NATO and Russia, uh, but also on the eve of a number of upcoming dialogues which have the potential for a breakthrough. And we want to explore this uh, with Dr. Kortunov. So Andre, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. The tension that's been growing in the most recent period can be traced back to the December 3rd leak in the Washington Post claiming that the Russians and President Putin are about to invade Ukraine. Uh, this has led to several discussions, two talks, in fact, video talks between Presidents Putin and Biden. And the, there is a demand from President Putin that there be a discussion about legally binding agreements for Russian national security. I'd like to start by just asking you, why do you think at this time there's been increased tension? And I don't mean to say it just started December 3rd, but we've seen a constant drumbeat since then. Well, it's hard uh, to tell what exactly triggered uh, the current escalation, but uh, I think that it was simmering uh, for some time. Uh, if you look at the Russian side uh, of the equation, of course, uh, there has been a growing disappointment uh, with the performance uh, of the uh, Normandy group. Uh, and I think uh, that uh, right now there are very clear uh, frustrations uh, about the ability of this group uh, to lead uh, to the full implementation of the Minsk agreements. Uh, there were hopes when uh, Mr. Zelensky came to power in Kyiv that uh, he would be very different from his predecessor, uh, Mr. Poroshenko, but in the end of the day, it turned out that uh, he was uh, more of, of the same. Uh, he uh, uh, introduced a new legislation on languages, which uh, implies marginalization of the use of the Russian language in Ukraine. Uh, he banned a couple of uh, important and influential opposition media. He prosecuted uh, some of uh, Russia-friendly politicians in his country. So the perception was that uh, probably we cannot expect too much from him. Uh, likewise, uh, there was a growing frustration with uh, uh, Paris and Berlin in terms of their ability to uh, use their leverage uh, uh, in Kyiv to make uh, the Ukrainian side uh, implement the Minsk agreements. Uh, and uh, an indicator of this uh, was uh, the publication of uh, exchange of letters between uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, and his peers uh, in Paris and in Berlin, a very unorthodox, unusual step for the Russian diplomacy, which suggests that uh, Russia cannot really count uh, on Berlin and Paris as uh, honest brokers uh, in this conflict. Uh, so I think that ultimately the decision was made that uh, we should uh, uh, bring it uh, to the attention of President Biden because uh, uh, President Biden uh, might be a tough uh, 
negotiate, but he at least delivers uh, on his commitments. And uh, Biden has demonstrated uh, that uh, he is ready to continue a dialogue with Moscow. Uh, they had a meeting with President Putin in June of last year in Geneva. And um, I think that uh, uh, the decision was made that we should count on the United States more than on our European partners. So this is uh, how <clears throat> I see the situation on the Russian side. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, there are also concerns about what Putin called uh, uh, a military cultivation of the Ukrainian territory by the North Atlantic Alliance. Uh, looking at the situation from Moscow, one can see that uh, though Ukraine uh, is not a member to the NATO alliance, but uh, there is more and more military cooperation between Ukraine and uh, countries uh, like the United States and uh, Germany and the United Kingdom and Turkey. And that changes the equation in the east of Ukraine. And I think that the concerns uh, in Moscow are that at some point, uh, President Zelensky or whoever is in charge uh, in Kyiv might uh, decide uh, to go for a military solution of the Donbass problem. Uh, and this is uh, definitely not something that Moscow would like to see. So in certain ways, uh, the Russian policy in Ukraine is that of deterrence uh, to deny Kyiv a military solution uh, for the problem of the East. Now, you wrote that you don't believe that President Putin intends to invade Ukraine, that it would be an enormous cost to, to Russia. And that in fact, the sending of troops to the border, which was within Russia, uh, maybe, and all this increased tension may be designed to send a signal to the West. You just mentioned France and Germany. Uh, but do you think the, the West is getting the signal? The, Anna Elena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, was just in Washington, and she and Blinken were rattling their sabers a little bit again. Uh, Stoltenberg of NATO continues to make very strong statements. Do you think the signal is being recognized, or uh, it, it's reaching the people that need to, to understand what President Putin is insisting on? Well, I think that uh, it really depends on how we define recognition of the signal, because uh, on the one hand, uh, indeed, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, we uh, observe uh, a lot of uh, uh, rather militant rhetoric coming from the West. Uh, and. Uh, it is not limited uh, to Washington and uh, to Berlin only. Uh, we see some other Western uh, countries uh, where they make very strong statements uh, denying Russia veto power over decisions uh, that uh, mm -hmm. are made or can be made uh, within the uh, NATO alliance. But on the other hand, uh, uh, you can also observe that uh, uh, there is uh, a readiness at least uh, to start talking uh, to Moscow. And this is exactly what uh, Mr. Putin apparently wants. Uh, his point is that uh, if we uh, do not generate a certain tension, uh, you will not uh, uh, listen to us. Uh, you will not even hear us. Uh, so we are forced uh, to make all these noises uh, in order to get uh, heard, if not listened to. Uh, so they are ready to meet. Uh, I am not too optimistic about uh, potential breakthroughs that can be reached uh, within these meetings. Uh, but uh, the 
uh, idea to meet uh, and uh, to discuss uh, pending issues uh, is already something that uh, uh, President Putin can claim as his foreign policy accomplishment. Now, in the United States, the media is continuing to paint President Putin as an autocrat, Russia as an authoritarian nation, and the they're sort of missing one of the broader points here, which is that we're looking at something that could be described as a reverse Cuban Missile Crisis. And I just went through President Kennedy's October 22nd, 1962 speech, where he made a point very parallel to what President Putin's saying, which is that no nation can tolerate offensive weapons that close to Cuba. Do you think this is something that is part of the consideration from the standpoint of uh, President Putin and the Russian government? Well, I think that, uh, again, you're right here. I think that definitely President Putin uh, implies that uh, there are certain rules uh, of the game, maybe uh, not codified rules of the game that uh, should be observed. And I think that uh, when we're talking about the US position on that, uh, there is uh, a standard uh, uh, US uh, uh, feeling of uh, exclusiveness uh, uh, we can do it uh, because we are good guys, so we cannot harbor any evil intentions. So our missiles are fine. These are peacekeeping missiles. Uh, they cannot constitute any threat uh, to Russia or to anyone else. But if you guys put your missiles in the vicinity of our borders, uh, since you are bad guys, it means that your missiles are also bad and uh, they uh, should be removed. Of course, uh, the United States uh, pursues uh, this uh, policy of uh, double standards for a very long time. I, and uh, I understand why the United States is doing that. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, such double standards uh, can no longer work uh, in our world. So if we agree that uh, there should be certain constraints and uh, that uh, uh, security interests of major powers should be taken into consideration, then it should be applied universally. Uh, it should not be applied to the United States only, but uh, it should be applied uh, to Russia, to China, to some other countries as well. Now, you've spoken of, of your view that there needs to be a new security architecture to replace the existing block structure, which seems to be left over from the Cold War. Uh, just a couple of days ago, the permanent five nations of the UN Security Council issued a statement which I, I think was quite extraordinary, that nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, which is an echo of the discussion between Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev back in, I believe, 1986. Uh, is this the kind of thing that can move toward a, a new security architecture or recognition of something like this? And what kind of changes would you like to see in order to uh, create stability and ease the tensions? Well, you know, I would say that uh, this is uh, an important first step. Uh, and uh, the, the question is whether this step uh, uh, will have any uh, continuation uh, because it is relatively easy though, you know, it is difficult uh, in itself, but it is in relative terms, uh, it is easier to make a general statement uh, without uh, uh, making any specific commitments uh, than uh, to go for something, uh, you know, more practical. Uh, I guess that uh, 
one of the problems that we see in Europe uh, uh, in particular is that uh, NATO uh, has uh, monopolized the security agenda uh, in Europe. And that implies that uh, if you're not within NATO, uh, you have no stakes in the European security. You are not a stakeholder. And uh, if you're not a stakeholder, you are tempted to become a spoiler. And uh, that is something that I see as a major problem. Uh, so in my view, the key goal should be not uh, uh, to reverse uh, the NATO enlargement, which is not possible, I think, uh, but rather to deprive NATO of its monopoly position uh, on European security matters. Uh, that uh, might imply uh, given more power and more authority to more inclusive European institutions uh, like uh, uh, Organization on uh, Security and uh, Cooperation in Europe, for example, OECE, which uh, really needs uh, some additional flesh on its bones. Uh, it has to be empowered. It has to become a, a real uh, European multilateral organization that uh, uh, can uh, take uh, a part uh, of uh, uh, the uh, security agenda. There might be some other agreements uh, uh, and uh, some other arrangements that uh, would uh, diversify our security portfolio in Europe. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, definitely uh, any European system uh, which excludes Russia by definition uh, is likely to be uh, very, uh, uh, not very stable, let me put it in this way, and uh, fragile, and uh, uh, it will have high maintenance costs. So uh, I think it's better to have Russia in rather than to have Russia out. Now, in an article you wrote recently, uh, Non-Alarmist Forecast, uh, one of the things you talked about is finding areas of cooperation. And you said one of the most urgent of these is Afghanistan for obvious reasons, the refugee crisis, the potential for radicalization of people. If the humanitarian crisis deepens as it is, I mean, David Beasley of the World Food Organization just said yesterday, almost 9 million Afghans are at the verge of starvation. Do you see a potential then through the extended troika to do something? And uh, as, as you know, uh, Mrs. Helga Zepp-LaRouche of the Schiller Institute has called for Operation Ibn Sina to use the healthcare situation as the basis of beginning not just emergency aid, but building up a modern healthcare system in Afghanistan. Is this some area where you could see some uh, cooperation? Well, Afghanistan strikes me as uh, one of uh, very few places uh, in the world uh, where I see no major uh, contradictions between the East and the West, uh, between Russia and China on the one hand uh, and uh, the United States and the European Union on the other. I think that uh, everybody around Afghanistan and uh, also uh, uh, if uh, we uh, consider overseas powers, uh, everybody uh, is interested uh, in uh, seeing Afghanistan as a stable place. Uh, as a place uh, which uh, will not harbor international terrorism, uh, as a place uh, which uh, will uh, uh, stop being a major drug producer and drug exporter, 
uh, to neighboring countries. Uh, so these interests are essentially uh, the same. Uh, so I would definitely uh, call for uh, an as broad uh, international coalition to deal with Afghanistan as possible. And these coalitions should involve not only neighboring countries, uh, which are clearly very important, uh, uh, but also countries that have their stakes in Afghanistan. Uh, we can talk about the European Union, which remains uh, uh, the largest uh, assistance provider to Afghanistan even today. Uh, we can talk about the United States with uh, its uh, residual influence uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, we can uh, talk uh, about uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, Turkey, Iran, uh, uh, and uh, Central Asian states. So I think that uh, the broader the coalition we have in dealing with Afghanistan, the better it is, because uh, it would mean that we have more leverage in uh, dealing uh, with the regime in Kabul. And that also implies that we uh, can agree on the red lines uh, that uh, this regime should not cross if it wants to maintain uh, its international legitimacy. Uh, so I think Afghanistan uh, can be regarded not only as a challenge, but also as an opportunity for a multilateral uh, international uh, cooperation. We can talk about the extended Troika. Uh, we can talk uh, about uh, SCO as a platform to discuss Afghanistan. We can talk about uh, other formats, but uh, formats are just tools in our hands. Uh, the key issue is uh, to agree on what we expect from Taliban and uh, what we can give Taliban in exchange. Now, another area I want to take up with you is the Russia-China alliance. This is causing sleepless nights for a lot of the geopoliticians who see this primarily as a military alliance. And it seems as though they're ignoring the economic benefits of Eurasian integration, including the potential benefits for the West. Uh, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Is this going to continue the, the alliance? And is it more than just a reaction to the targeting of Moscow and Beijing by the Western Warhawks? Well, uh, I think that uh, these days, uh, everybody is uh, pivoting to Asia. Uh, Asia is uh, becoming a, an important driver of the global economic development. And uh, you cannot ignore China, no matter where you sit, where you sit, whether you sit uh, in Moscow or in Brussels or in Washington, you have to keep in mind uh, what's going on in Beijing. So the Russian-Chinese cooperation has its uh, own logic. Uh, we have uh, arguably the longest uh, uh, land border in the world. And definitely there is a natural complementarity of the Russian and the Chinese uh, economies. Uh, the trade uh, is growing pretty fast. Uh, I think that uh, uh, if you take uh, last year, it is about $140 billion. Uh, and uh, there is a lot of potential there. There are also uh, common interests. Uh, there are interests that the two countries uh, share in terms of uh, Eurasia, and uh, we discussed Afghanistan, definitely this is where uh, Russian and Chinese interests mostly coincide. 
uh, we can uh, talk uh, about uh, the situation in the Northeast Asia. And again, here there is an overlap of uh, Russian and Chinese interests. As far as the United States is concerned, I think that uh, definitely both countries uh, uh, are exposed uh, to uh, political and uh, military and uh, economic pressures uh, from Washington. Uh, the Biden administration continues the policy of dual containment uh, uh, targeted at both uh, uh, Beijing and Moscow. Uh, and uh, that is an additional factor that uh, brings uh, Russia and China closer to each other. But let me emphasize once again that uh, uh, the Russian-Chinese cooperation has uh, uh, its uh, own dynamics, uh, its own logic, and uh, this uh, logic uh, does not uh, depend fully on the position of the United States, though this position is important uh, for politicians both in Russia and in China. I want to come back to the P5 statement on the not fighting nuclear wars, uh, because we've raised this before in, in discussion with you. Uh, do you still see President Putin, I guess, in uh, January of 2020, proposed a P5 summit so that it's broader than just the United States and Russia? Uh, do you still see this as, as a venue that would be an appropriate one for taking up some of these broader issues? I think it would be important. Uh, uh, it would be important, at least, uh, in order to uh, reactivate uh, the United Nations Security Council, uh, because uh, unfortunately we see that on many important issues uh, the Council cannot uh, really deliver, uh, because there are very clear disagreements between uh, its permanent members, and uh, that prevents uh, the Council from taking a consorted action. So I think that uh, if uh, they discuss some of the regional issues uh, at uh, such a meeting, uh, if they discuss uh, issues uh, like non-proliferation or fight against international terrorism, uh, or uh, let's say energy or food security, uh, that would be helpful. Of course, uh, the B5 uh, cannot uh, decide uh, on uh, every single uh, international issue. Uh, they uh, cannot uh, resolve all uh, global problems without participation of other states, but you have to start somewhere, and maybe a P5 uh, meeting face-to-face, uh, -face, hopefully, uh, will be this uh, uh, important starting point. Uh, if it is uh, successful, then we can uh, complement it with other formats. Uh, for example, when we talk about uh, the economic dimension, uh, we can do a lot uh, within the G20 framework, uh, and uh, that uh, should complement the efforts of the Security Council. Uh, some issues uh, can uh, uh, be discussed uh, 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 in the uh, framework of bilateral U.S.-Russian negotiations, some of them will require multilateral uh, uh, discussions uh, and multilateral formats. So formats might be different. Uh, uh, the question is whether they have the political will uh, mm -hmm. to pursue this agenda, whether they are ready uh, to uh, go beyond uh, their conventional wisdom and uh, to think strategically. Well, and on this whole question then of bilateral discussion, 
Uh, do you think there's a prospect for progress on nuclear arms discussions in the year ahead? Uh, well, I think that uh, if there is a will, there is a way, of course, uh, but uh, it will be an uphill battle for uh, both sides because uh, uh, it's not clear uh, what we could have uh, after uh, start the new start agreement uh, expires uh, in uh, uh, about four years from now. Uh, the the arms race uh, is uh, uh, changing. It's no longer about numbers. It's no longer about uh, warheads and delivery means. Uh, it's about uh, quantity. It's about precision. It's about prompt strike. It's about autonomous lethal weapons. Uh, it's about cyber, it's about space, and we still uh, have to find ways to counter these uh, very dangerous destabilizing trends uh, in the uh, nuclear arms race. On top of that, uh, we have uh, uh, a very serious problem of how to uh, multilateralize uh, mm -hmm. strategic arms control, because uh, the lower we go, I mean, we the United States and the Russian Federation, the lower we go, the more important uh, nuclear capacities of third countries become. And uh, we have to engage them this way or another uh, into the uh, arms control of, of the future. So there are many issues here. I wouldn't say that I'm totally pessimistic about the future of arms control, but uh, it will require a lot of commitment, uh, a lot of patience, and a lot of stamina. Somewhat pressing right now, which is the situation in Kazakhstan. We were talking last night, given the upcoming meetings and the potential for a breakthrough, that maybe we should be watching for something coming out of the blue that could be a destabilizing influence. And there are elements of what's happening in Kazakhstan which are coherent with what we've seen with color revolutions in the past, including Western intervention into the affairs of other countries. Uh, do you have any reading of this? Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, it's hard to tell. Uh, it is probably too early to uh, jump uh, at conclusions uh, uh, because, uh, of course, uh, there will be people in the West uh, who would applaud uh, to uh, the, the current developments uh, in Kazakhstan. At the same time, uh, for instance, uh, if you look at uh, large American uh, oil uh, and mining companies. Uh, they uh, had a pretty good uh, business in Kazakhstan and uh, they cannot be interested uh, in a political destabilization there. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure that uh, the United States uh, has been directly involved uh, in uh, staging uh, a color revolution in, in Kazakhstan, uh, but uh, definitely uh, there are some external players that might be interested uh, in uh, uh, in a turmoil uh, and mutiny in Kazakhstan. Uh, having said that, uh, I should uh, underscore that there are some fundamental domestic uh, roots of the problem. Uh, definitely, uh, the uh, leadership of the country was too slow to react uh, to uh, the social and economic demands uh, of the population. Uh, they promised political reforms, uh, but again, uh, they dragged their feet uh, on this issue, which triggered uh, the events that we now observe. 
I can only hope that uh, everybody will uh, uh, learn uh, appropriate lessons. Uh, uh, the state authorities uh, should uh, learn how important it is uh, to uh, keep an eye on the changing moods uh, of the society. And protesters uh, should uh, also learn that uh, the borderline uh, between uh, uh, peaceful protests uh, and uh, violent uh, uh, extremism uh, might be murky. We now see that already hundreds uh, of people, unfortunately, were killed uh, in uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, there were many cases uh, of uh, looting and vandalism, and uh, definitely uh, this is something that has to be stopped. Well, Andre, thank you very much for your time and joining us today. As these thank meetings you. take place and, and we see new developments, I would like to be able to have an opportunity to speak with you again and, and see how these things are moving. My pleasure. Thank you.